Hey guys, welcome to this week's podcast. I have a bunch of cool stuff lined up and a guest appearance from Smoke Monster, so let's just jump right in and get started. Okay, up first, I've been talking about it for like a year and a half now, but Darksoft's MVS cart is up for pre-order. I'm not exactly sure when it'll ship, but get your pre-orders in now. Um, supposedly I'm having one shipped to me, so I'll be able to do a full side-by-side comparison of that and the Neo SD, which I actually liked very much. So I'm really, really looking forward to putting it through its paces. Um, and that is something that I would consider time sensitive. So as soon as that thing arrives, I'm going straight into the office. I'm grabbing my buddy Phil, who has the Neo SD, and he lives in Brooklyn. Uh, and we're just going to go straight there, start shooting video, and, and really just kind of work through this thing. And hopefully play a whole bunch of Neo Geo games. So if you're interested in this, definitely pre-order now. The AES version's coming coming soon, I guess. Uh, no offense, they said the MVS version was coming soon a year and a half ago, so who knows what that actually means. Uh, but since this is done and working and they got through all of the major hurdles, it would be my nerd guess, just as somebody that's done manufacturing and stuff before, uh, that's probably three months. Just a guess. Maybe it's three weeks, maybe it's three days, maybe it's three years. Just a guess. Please don't quote me on that one. But anyway, exciting stuff. Uh, now we could all finally enjoy Neo Geo games without, you know, taking out a second and third mortgage on our house. Next, I got to share a quick story with you guys about the original G-Scart Switch. Uh, I actually wanted to do this first and just have some fun with it, but the Darksoft thing definitely took precedence to this. Uh, but years ago, when um, Super G first started mass-producing the G-Scart Switch, I had kind of helped just with the distribution side, and then I talked to a buddy of mine, a mechanical engineer, to see if we could make a really awesome metal case for it. So we went through, we did the drawings, uh, you know, we kind of looked at a few different things, and then I got the prototype made, uh, and then I guess the deal was the prototype was going to be about $160, remember that price in a moment, um, and then when that came in, uh, once we mass produced it, it would be a few dollars each because then they could make the tools for it and everything would be fine. So I, I put an order in for the case, the case arrives and I have a bill for $650. <laughs> Apparently the case is three pieces and I only saw, they only sent or I only saw the PDF for one of them. I assume it's my mistake because I've used this vendor before and there was a time where I was, you know, I had my hands in a million projects and stuff. So I had only looked for the cost of one of the pieces, so all three in the cheapest piece. So the total cost of that prototype was like six fifty, and we got it in. And Super G and I both really liked it, and we thought that the extra money for that case uh, would totally justify itself because it's pretty awesome. Until we started calculating shipping, so while it would have been like fifteen dollars, maybe twenty more per unit for a nice, awesome, badass metal case it was actually going to cost like another especially with international shipping like almost double when it was that weight so we just called it and said no forget it it's not worth it but, but it's been sitting there and i've been wanting to use it because after spending that much money and going through i really just wanted it but i wanted it powder coated and the only places i know that do that uh, i mean they charge an arm and a leg they, they do like custom stuff for motorcycles it'd probably be hundreds of dollars um, and the place that used to do our prototypes for the computer company closed, so I had nowhere to go. So uh, Ben Abrish actually contacted me, and he got this thing powder-coated for me, and holy crap, take a look. 
I mean, when I got this thing back, I was so freaking excited. So it is the Metal Edition G-Scart Switch. Um, I will put up the design documents, so if anybody works at a metal shop or wants to get these made, uh, you could do that for yourself. This one is designed only for the original 3.2. If you have the light or any of the other versions, uh, you're actually going to have to redo the 3D drawings. These were done in SolidWorks. So pretty much, I mean, if you're already a mechanical engineer, this is a very small amount of work. But anybody else on the planet, it's a lot of work and a lot of money. So by chance, if any of you happen to work at a metal shop and do mechanical engineering, I'll leave all the, the stuff for you guys. Uh, open source it, if you will. Do whatever you want with it. But it's absolutely awesome. I love it. Thank you so much to Ben for doing that. Uh, I am never selling this thing. I don't even care... I don't care what happens. I don't care if uh, a new standard comes out. I'm just, I'll just leave this on my mantle. Anytime anybody asks me what it is, I'm just going to look right, th right at their eyes and just go, it's metal. Next, I got a chance to test the sync regeneration chip on the RetroTink Ultimate. Uh, I think I'm saying that right. I think it's the sync regeneration chip. But basically, it's something that helps with consoles that have odd horizontal sync slices or for uh, weird timings and stuff like that. And I took a 14-inch D-Series BVM I had, which had the same issues as some of the A-Series, like the BKM68X, or even some of the, the other D-Series. And as soon as I plugged it in using just one of the regular Raspberry Pi images, everything got all weird. You know, you could see the, the bending on the top. But the same exact software image, just using the RetroTINK Ultimate, everything's fine, including Sega Master System, which definitely would not work even with the real console on this monitor. So um, this is not really a, a new thing. I just, I guess I wanted to let everybody know that I confirmed that the RetroTINK thing uh, really is the sync thing really does work as well as Mike had hoped. Um, and uh, if anybody was had that series BVM that are having these issues, it's definitely the solution to your problem. So well done, Mike. Um, when he gets back, hopefully I could, uh, I think he's traveling for work. I'm going to bug him a lot more about some other stuff I'd love to work on with him. So awesome. Keep it coming, Mike. And speaking of Raspberry Pi gaming, the RGB Pi just had a software update that added a few more features and uh, kind of tweaked a few more things. So if you're already using an RGB Pi, it's probably worth upgrading. I mean, it's free, so why not? Uh, and I guess one of the advantages of using the USB stick separate for the ROMs is you could update the SD card and uh, you don't really have to worry about recopying anything. It's just on the USB stick. But uh, I'm a big fan of this. Scott, Cousin Scott, is actually using this on his vertical PVM. So Tate, Tate, vertical. I'm still not really sure what you're supposed to call it. But he took his... 8-inch BVM, put it on its side, and he's running this through it, and it's absolutely awesome. So, uh, you know, uh, I'm really happy that there's all these different solutions available for the Raspberry Pi stuff. As we learned with the uh, interview with Dan Mons, you know, having a much more powerful computer would probably get you better performance, but the Pi stuff does work well, and it's so easy. Even non-nerds could pull it off most of the time. A little bit of a learning curve. Hopefully my videos helped a little bit, but it's just such an easy and cool situ uh, solution, and especially for, like, what Scott's doing. You know, he just has double-sided tape. He's keeping the uh, the RGB Pi and the actually the, um, the Raspberry Pi itself stuck to the side of it, going directly into the back. 
just a very cool little solution that he probably wouldn't be able to fit if he had to have a full PC along next to it. So, uh, I love these things. Keep them coming, guys. It looks like that prototype for the Saturn that I talked about a while back is up on eBay for over $5,000. So I still don't know too much about it. There's a, a video um, and there's obviously the eBay link, but I just I know I have a lot of friends that are super into the Saturn. So if nothing else, it's absolutely worth clicking on the link and watching the video if you're into this stuff. Uh, but, I mean, that's a lot of money to spend on something that hopefully at some point would be in a museum so we could all kind of take a look at. But... Either way, uh, I love seeing glimpses into development history like this. Any kind of prototype or uh, you know, anything where you could see the original developers really materializing their ideas is very exciting to, to a geek like me, so had to at least mention it. There's another MSU1 audio hack, this one for ActRaiser, uh, done by Mikael, uh, a.k.a. Darkshock. I always make sure I gotta say that right, because there's dark soft and dark shock. <laughs> Sorry, dude. <laughs> but um, another awesome hack. I love these things. Um, and you could check out the link down below for more info. And there's gonna be uh, a little bit more info on this on the next Smoke Monster video. So uh, stay tuned for that. Firebrand X just posted a video showing how he's tweaking the OSSC, the open source scan converter. And it's really great. Um, I love it both because I like uh, peeking behind the curtain and seeing the wizard. But I also, uh, you know, it's like the old saying, right? You know, teach a man to fish, give a man a fish. Um, you know, being, I would love for the OSSC to have Firebrand X packs on it so you could just select your console. But there are tons of little situations where you might need to do tweaks. And while most of us, especially in the retro gaming scene, are perfectly capable of going through menus and tweaking, knowing what to look for and knowing the little tricks that, that have taken a long time to, for other people to learn just saves so much time and so much trouble. So huge thank you to Firebrand X for posting that, and uh, I hope to see more videos from him. No pressure or nothing, but uh, yeah, I'd definitely like to see more content like that because it's very cool to be able to tweak your individual setup as best it can. It looks like while testing and tweaking the one-chip Super Nintendo to squeeze a little more uh, perfection out of it, we actually stumbled across another glitch in the one-chips. So to try to make this as quick as possible, the original Super Nintendo consoles, the first you know handful of revisions, had two chips that processed video. And the video came out kind of soft, but the games ran fine. The one-chip consoles, so literally both video chips are now in one chip, are much sharper, and there's a ton of information about this on my website, a bunch of videos I did, but the one chips have some glitches on some games. Now, in my opinion, it's not nearly enough to, to choose the two chip over that one, but it's still something that you should know, and it's also good to know which are the games that have glitches, so that when you're seeing issues, you realize it's something that you can't do anything about and not just a problem with your specific console. And the latest one we, uh, was found in some of the Capcom games. And it just so happened that the fix that took care of the ghosting that Voltar figured out a couple of weeks ago actually made this issue a little bit more prominent. So it didn't cause any problems, the issues there on stock one chips, but in tweaking one thing, it kind of brought out the flaws in another. So it was just kind of a neat thing. In my opinion, it's not something that would bother me because, uh, you know, it's only the first top of the screen that you really see an issue. But I just thought it was pretty cool and thought it was worth mentioning because it's kind of fun when we start to see all the little glitches and 
how things happen like this. But uh, I just I love the attention to detail that all of us are spending on these things, and we really are just finding ways to squeeze every little bit of quality out of these consoles and stumbling upon some of the messes in between. A video was recently posted that showed how video games progressed differently in Brazil, and I've uh, talked about a few of these documentaries or mini-documentaries before, and I really love all of these things. Um, it's kind of fascinating to, to peer through different parts of the world and, and figure out why and what things happened. And I actually have a, a few friends in Korea that say they're going to help me do like a little, uh, maybe more of like a podcast style on it. Uh, as much as I would absolutely love to just fly around the world and do a documentary series about this stuff, not only do I not have you know a gazillion dollars to, to do that, but I'm very clearly not so great on the video editing. Do it well enough to make a decent podcast, but uh, maybe maybe one day if I win the lottery or something, I could uh, hire the My Life and Gaming guys to come around the planet with me and do a whole global documentary on video games. But this one's definitely seems like a cool one to watch. Uh, and maybe I'll try to find and just put a page on the website, different ones that I recommend. There were a few about Russian video games that I loved. There's, of course, the, the Tetris, Tetris from Russia with Love, I believe, was the title of that documentary. That one was really cool. So I'll try to find uh, links to these things and maybe put up a page on my website within the next few weeks. But if you have any interest in this stuff at all, I would definitely check it out. Um, you know, always, always cool to see different sides of things. It looks like the Brooklyn Arcade crew was featured on another article online, and I'm really happy that they're getting all of this recognition. Uh, I talk about these guys all the time, and I'm really sorry if you guys are sick of hearing about it, but um, this time Beast did an interview with uh, Rushdown Radio and talked about iFix Machine, which is uh, basically Chris's store, which is like a computer fix-it store by day and an arcade gaming mecca by night. Uh, very cool place. They have a ton of sit-down arcade machines now. The um, the candy cabs were the, the versus cabs, I think, is the proper way to say it. And it's just really awesome. So it's uh, um, these guys are, are really not only keeping it alive, but kind of causing a resurgence of interest in all this stuff. So congrats on getting featured in another article. And, uh, you know, it, like I keep saying every time I talk about this, anybody who's in the Brooklyn area on the weekends, definitely look up which one of these guys are doing their arcade tournaments, whether it's iFix Machine, Brooklyn Video Games, anything down at Next Level. Just follow all the all the players and uh, you know basically see where everybody's at, because if you're into this stuff, I couldn't think of a better place to be right now to, to check it out, except maybe Japan, but I mean, come on. <laughs> It looks like Dan's making some good progress on the GC plug, the external GC video solution, and he recently just posted a picture of the analog RGB SCART cable that could be used with it. So, very cool stuff. I got a chance to try the internal mod myself, uh, along with Art, aka Sabin, and uh, I loved it. Thought it was very cool. Um, you know, and there's a lot more stuff coming out for uh, GC video across the board, so I just I love that all these new options are coming out, and I can't wait to take a look at the final version of his external dual version. Dan's also making some progress with his 3DO RGB board. He said this new design will actually just clip on to the VP chip with no soldering required, and it'll still be able to be used with the BT chips, you just would have to solder that one individually. Uh, I actually, the, 
3DO RGB mod I did myself a few years ago, well, many years ago now, right when I first started the website, was such a pain, and I remember that so distinctly because I didn't know what Flux was then, or if I knew, I didn't really grasp how important it was. Remember, this is the very inception of retro RGB, I think before the site was even live, but I remember doing it, and I did everything perfect, and I checked and rechecked, and I was so pissed, and I let my friend Phil borrow it, um, and, you know, like a year later, he finally got to it, and everything was installed right, I just didn't use Flux, so none of the connections, even though they were sticking, um, it, it wasn't really making the proper connection, and the signal wasn't wasn't really kind of... Reviews are starting to come in for the SNES 30 Pro controller. That's the controller from 8-Bit Do. That it's basically a Super Nintendo controller, but with two analog sticks built in. So it should be the perfect match for something like the Nintendo Switch. And I haven't had a chance to test it myself yet, but it seems like something that's pretty neat, and if nothing else, it's cheaper than the official Switch Pro controller. So it's a great alternative, and it has that you know familiar SNES grip to it. I finally had time to do that comparison of an RGB modded TV versus the component inputs of that same TV. And to skip to the end, I did see a difference. The RGB input did seem a little bit clearer, but this is only one scenario, and there could be a million things affecting it. Anything from calibration to capacitors to interference on the board to anything else. So basically, my what my gut feeling always was seems to still be in line in that if you have a consumer-grade uh, TV that has component video inputs, there's really no reason to RGB mod it unless you really love this stuff and unless you've already done it before. But just for something that's so time-consuming and dangerous, don't forget, uh, if you already have component video inputs, just use those. But that being said, I still really love RGB modded consumer-grade TVs, and there's a ton out there with just RF inputs or just or composite video that are actually great high-quality tubes. So doing an RGB mod to those would really be an excellent way to, to reuse and, and breathe new life into old technology. So check out the video if you're interested, and I hope to do a few more of these at some point in the future. Just a quick shout out to Voltar, wanted to say congratulations for reaching 2,000 subscribers on YouTube, um, and I don't know, let's, uh, if you're a fan of his work, definitely subscribe, and maybe we could do something fun if he hits 3,000 subscribers, like get him to mod something insane, like one of those gigantic ass old Zenith TVs, or uh, I don't know, RGB mod a refrigerator, whatever, <laughs> we'll figure some shit out, but uh, let's try to keep it going and, um, and really pump up his channel and see what crazy crap we can convince him to do if he hits 3,000. Next, I have Smoke Monster on to talk about open sourcing his ROM packs. Hey guys, I am here with Smoke Monster. What's up, man? Not much. How's it going? Pretty good. So, uh, as you would expect, I can't do a Smoke Monster interview without pouring myself at least a little bit of absinthe here. So we'll, uh, we'll just do one of those and hopefully it'll change by the time it's done. Be a good demonstration for, for those uh, absinthe amateurs. So this is the this is the stupid American way of doing things. You're supposed to lathe it and drip it over ice. I'm just going to pour it over a gigantic ice cube. And you can see the color, like a dark, dark color. And you'll see what it looks like when we're done. <laughs> oh, man, I'm jealous. You're lucian it up. Yeah, I didn't, uh, I've been trying to save money lately. So I, I saw this one, this little mini bottle on sale, and I just had to pick it up both because it was cheaper than buying one of the $60 real ones, and because it's an adorable little bottle of absinthe. Why not? <laughs> oh. I've got two bottles that I brought back from Brazil 
waiting at home for me in USA. It oh. used to be cheap, but now all of a sudden it's like outrageous here too. So yeah, well, anytime anything catches on, it's outrageous. So mm-hmm. I guess we're out of luck. But we're not actually here to talk about absinthe. Um, I want to know all about the. Uh, well, I'll just. How about you just tell the story because I think you could do it better than I could. Yeah. So. I have been officially on vacation with the Everdrive packs for a few weeks here. But what people don't know is that I've actually been working behind the scenes with Aquaman from EP, who's uh, he's a coder, Frederick Mahi. And we have been, well, first of all, I was at kind of a crossroads with the packs because it's kind of blown up out of proportion. They've gotten huge. And I'm not completely comfortable sharing roms you know i don't want to do that forever it was kind of just a temporary thing on a forum at first and then it became big so i've been thinking about either i was either going to stop doing the packs completely which would be kind of a shame because it's it's a good archive project yeah from a historical point of view it's it's really important as well as mm-hmm. just for playing yeah and that's why i don't like the idea of just pulling the plugs on the files so i've been what i came up with was i had this idea for open sourcing the packs and everybody listening is like, what are you talking about? That's not possible. <laughs> but uh, my idea was, so if you could, just like with MAME, like MAME doesn't actually distribute any files, you know, they would never do that. They'll end up in prison or something or, you know, right? they're playing with that. So what they distribute is the description of files. They just, they describe the hashes and you recreate their their layouts using their hash files, essentially. So you collect the ROMs yourself, and then MAME imports them in and tells you if they're correct. And I was thinking, well, that's very complex, but the same kind of system could be done for something like the EverDrive packs, where with some scripts, I could describe the files that I have in terms of their hash. So like uh, SHA-256 would be good enough to describe every file. I could give the, the file name which I've changed a lot of them, or there's particular file names that are important for the EverDrives or for flashcards in general. And then the location of that file within a folder hierarchy. Mm-hmm. And so if you had those three pieces of information, then all you would need is the complete list for a pack, and people could take that script and using another script, point that script towards where they store their personal ROM collection, however they acquired it, hopefully legally, maybe their own dumps or whatever, and using that build script, it would take those files, compare their hash files to see if it's the exact same as what's in the pack, and then move them around to where they should be within a folder hierarchy. Mm-hmm. That's kind of complex. I was going to say, that sounds really complicated. <clears throat> yeah, so that was my idea of it. Unfortunately, I'm not a programmer. Mm-hmm. So I just put out a call for help a while ago, and uh, Aquaman got back to me, and he's like, oh, let me work on this, and I'll get back to you something. And he got back to me about a month later with these two incredible tools. He created the parse pack script, which is for creators, and the build pack script, which is for users. And it does exactly what I said. Hmm. So the parse pack script, it's this essentially it doesn't just open source the packs that I create. This opens and open sources the idea of the packs so that other people through GitHub can make their own packs. They can make recommendations. They can make changes, submissions, that kind of thing. Just like you talked about with your uh, RetroRGB 2.0 site, how it would be more of a community-driven project. Right. And I sort of, back in our first interview, I sort of put down my dream for doing something like that for the EverDrive packs, but it just seems so out of reach. Mm-hmm. 
uh, without going, you know, and getting a computer programming degree or something. <laughs> so he created the parse pack script, and anybody can use the script. And what it does is you point it towards a folder, and you could use this for all sorts of things, not just ROM collections. You could use it for like documenting your own media collection or documenting the layout of your hard drives, you know. Uh, you point the script towards a folder. It simply goes through and looks for it, creates a hash file for every single file that's in it. It records the file name for that hash and the location within the folder. And then he created the build pack script, which, oh, and then it outputs from the parse script an SMDB file, which is a text file with those three pieces of information, file name, the hash, and the folder location. Mm -hmm. So that creates an SMDB. So I'd create an SMDB for like the EverDrive N8, say, which is what I did. And that describes my what I recommend for the EverDrive N8. It doesn't give you any ROM files. It doesn't give you anything. It just tells you these are the files that you need if you want to create a pack as I'm describing it to you in text form. So you take your SMDB folder and you point it towards just a folder that you just dump every ROM that you have in, right? So you have a thousand of them in there. And it doesn't have to be in any kind of structure at all. You just dump nope. them all in. No structure at all. The file names don't matter. It, all that matters is that if their hash file matches the hash file from the pack, then the script will take it and do its thing with it. If not, it'll, it'll just ignore it. Gotcha. So the build pack, you give it the SMDB and you point it towards your ROMs and it will take it and it'll take your ROMs, create, compare the hashes to the SMDB, sort them all and create a pack for you. So somebody can create my pack from scratch using the SMDB file. And so that's what we're creating here. And we've released it on GitHub now. It's open source, uh, GNU v3.0. So we can all get going on it. And I've been using it here. Uh, Aquaman, Frederick walked me through how to use the uh, GitHub tools and all that kind of stuff. So it's up and running right now. The packs, the ROM files are no longer being shared, but that doesn't really matter anymore because the ROMs are out there. And they're going to be out there and through thousands and thousands of sites. I mean, they're on archive.org and all about those kind of places. Yeah, uh, there's other, a number of them that you can get, the um, like the no intro or the good set packs, as well as individual. Um, now, mm -hmm. would this script be compatible with any of those packs? This, yes, this script will just take, even, it'll even work on ROMs that you dump yourself. So if you dump, like, because, like, a no intro collection, for example, if you were to take the chip out of, like, um, uh, DuckTales or something, right? Mm -hmm. Take the actual EEPROM out of it and dump that to your computer. If you've done it correctly, it'll be in a bit perfect match to what no intro did. So it's, it, it's, this pack is, it's independent of any particular set. It's because your CRC to, or your SHA-256 from your dumped ROM is going to be the exact same as the no intro ROM, which might be the one that I'm using in my pack. I sort of switch it up because the other thing is, so if you were to look at these collections, you would say that the good group is focusing on having everything. And that's really cool as an archive project. They want to have every copy of every ROM, good or bad dump, it doesn't matter. Every single hack, like everything in existence is what good's after. Mm-hmm. Not great if you're using an EverDrive because 90% of those probably don't even work on it, right? Right. For reason or another. Uh, no intro, they want bit perfect, exact ROM dumps of every official ROM for a system. And you could say the EverDrive Packs project is neither one. It's not looking at everything and it's not looking at bit perfect. What we're looking at is real hardware perfect. 
So what I want to do is document, you know, there, these unlike, like an example would be an unlicensed Nintendo ROM. You could dump it off of your actual cart, put it on your computer, and you can't actually play that ROM because that ROM requires specific information or a specific layout that that custom PCB was on. So those are unplayable. It's a great one-to-one -one copy, mm -hmm. but you can't do anything with it. So what I've documented is which fix you need to play that every single ROM, you know, because we know that these have been really thoroughly tested now, and it's at the point where pretty much everything that's in the pack, except for maybe a few hacks here and there, are going to work on real hardware. So I think there's a place for the EverDrive Packs project out in this world of uh, archive projects. And so that's what I'm focusing more on research at this point, researching what are the flash, what are the flash cart ready or PCB burnable, uh, the best ROMs that are available. You know, that's pretty awesome. Now, now that you've really explained it, because I've read your emails and I thought I got it, but I, I didn't get it until you just took the time to explain it. And it makes sense now because, you know, obviously anytime you have any kind of uh, longevity in your idea, um, that's always good because, you know, now it's a community effort that people could contribute to. But on top of that, um, you know, it does, it does alleviate the, any concerns about you talking about these things openly. Because, you know, whether we like it or not, obviously you and I are on the same page of how important these are. And the majority of people that, uh, that I interact with are. But there's a few, even very close friends of mine, that are vocally the opposite. Um, you know, they, at the end of the day, if you don't own the games, it's piracy. And while I'm still 100% convinced, maybe 99.9, .9, you know, and a bunch of nines after that, that when it comes to when they're selling good versions of old games on new consoles, uh, these ROM packs do nothing but promote them and get people excited about it. But, you know, either way, the bottom line is it's still a gray area, a smoky area, if you will, that yeah. um, uh, that's now just there's no... No one could really argue with you about it because there's no... There's, there's nothing... Um, yeah. there, there is no gray area here. Having a GitHub with a bunch of, you know, uh, scripts on it it says text files, yeah. Bombs. Yeah, I mean, there's it's, so that's perfect. Now you could continue your work and have other people join and not really have to worry about any of this stuff. Mm hmm. And it's making it permanent, like in the same way that you want to you want to document your work. Like you said, it can all be lost. Like we pass away and our internet bill doesn't get paid, and this stuff's gone, you know, in right. a day, overnight. And you could have put thousands and thousands of hours, and all sorts of people could have contributed, but say a forum goes down, and that's just you know, the information's gone. Yeah. And so now all this work that it's not just me, you know, lots of people put work into these. And now I can describe all of that. And some of these, some of these are coming out to be 50 kilobyte text files. I can describe it in a file. As long as that text survives somewhere, that's all that matters. And yeah, and that, that is very obviously something that's going to be, uh, you know, you'll last a long time. Uh, just saving text, things like GitHub. Uh, you know, now also when I get the new version of the site up, I could just have like an unlisted page that's just a clone of it, just as a backup of a backup. <laughs> so mm -hmm. we don't have to worry about any of this stuff anymore, even things like the cost of hosting and all that stuff. So that mm -hmm. is pretty cool. And there are other projects that are already underway that have been, have, I mean, have been in progress since these consoles first started about making sure to get every game dumped. Um, and, you mm -hmm. know, there's new people working on newer consoles as well. But I think it's, uh, I think having this, I don't know, automatic list, however, however, whatever cool name we can think of for it. I, uh, I do think this is a great idea. 
Yeah, it does need a name. I'm calling it right now the EverDrive Packs List Database, which doesn't really roll off the tongue. No, and there, you support a bunch of other flashcards that are, are equally as awesome, if not better mm-hmm. in some cases, uh, that aren't EverDrives. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and the other thing is, this is, people think, oh, these are like fixes for EverDrives. That, they're not fixes for EverDrives. They're fixes for real hardware. And a lot of these fixes are going to be necessary. I mean, unless flashcard makers or PCB makers are making individual fixes, especially for unlicensed games, mm-hmm. Every single unlicensed game would need specific fixes in their BIOS for the flash cart before it would ever work on real hardware. And we'll never get to the point where every single game has a fix, individual fix for it, because they all have that, you know, lots of them have custom PCBs that some person made for a few years and that's it or something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So these fixes really are going to be important, even when if the EverDrives no longer exist for 10, 20 years from now. If people want to play something on real hardware, they need the hardware fix version in a lot of cases. Right. So I really think it's important for us. And all of this testing and everything, uh, this is real you know, work that's going to be part of the historical record of video games one day. Yeah. Because it's going to save somebody else thousands of hours down the line. Having to <laughs> yeah. Um, one of the things that I've noticed that you've always included, and uh, it's kind of more of the fad lately, uh, we haven't really talked about it because it's not so exciting to put in videos, but um, I am over the moon thrilled of how many language translations there have been lately. And, mm-hmm. you know, now there's people who who really want to experience a game, but, you know, if English isn't your first language, uh, you know, it kind of sucks. It's almost exactly like when we would play games that were translated badly from Japanese to English. So mm-hmm. now people have a chance to experience those. Um, is there, uh, other than romhacking.net, where you have to scroll through and kind of figure it out, uh, That's I guess that's one good place. I do have that one vid- mediocre-ish video showing people how to patch their own ROMs. But other mm-hmm. than that, can you think of another uh, another place to get these translations? And is this something that your pack is going to be supporting in the future? Yeah, so I do have... In terms of ROM hacking, I have got Game1213 is my official kind of romhacking.net spy. Who's He's keeping up with absolutely everything that comes out there uh, that's on a system that's supported in the, the project. So we'll have everything from ROM hacking, translations, hacks, uh, different languages, and all of that will be coming every couple of months or so. And then awesome. I just need to roll that into the uh, the description, and then it'll be there. So the new and in terms of finding, from, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, sorry. In terms of finding other translations, a lot of that stuff. And this is another big part of the project too. Is it's like up on a forum for you know a year, two years, or whatever. And as soon as that person ends their account, or if the attachments no longer work, then those can be lost. So those are really cool. To, they gather up those. We gather them up from everywhere. So yeah, it's about having a lot of people out there sending stuff in. A lot of people submit things through the forums. And then I'm spying on all of your news updates, too, finding out awesome. things. Um, so for proper procedure for people that find these new patches, um, you know, whether it's a language translation or like a Game Gear to Master System, would just simply be to take a ROM that you know for a fact works on a ROM cart, hence one of the ones from your packs, and then just go through the easy patching process. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, there's. it can be... Um... My preferred patches are BPS, Beat Patcher patches, or ASMs, because those will actually um, only patch 
on the game that they're designed for, or the, the ROM file that they were designed for. So you'll never end up with like a bad patch breaking something. Interesting. But you can also just do the IPS patches and then test them afterwards. Yeah, yeah, and I, I, you know, I actually do use both, but it just seems that most people use the IPS format. Yeah, it's it'll always be around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, thank you very much for the explanation. I mean, I, uh, you know, I was going to support your project either way, but now that you took the time to explain it, I'm even more excited about it than I was. Um, uh, I guess the only other thing is um, where where to find you. More updates from you coming up. Is it just uh, your YouTube channel for now? Yeah, I've got uh, my YouTube channel, uh, Smoke Monster, and I'm also I just started a Twitter account, so I'm going to see how that goes. That's my first venture into social networking in my life. So it's the one see, I hate mostly... the least out of all of them. So that's a good choice. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I saw you're there. Voltar's there. Uh, my life in gaming's pose. I'm like, eh, I'll go there too. Yeah, might as well. There. I'll go with the cool kids. I actually do like the limited, uh, the limited characters because. Uh, I got really frustrated a bunch of times in Facebook with people posting a, a four-page rant about something that made no sense. Uh, it really, you know, as much as I'm not as excited in social media about other people. Sentences. Yeah, if it, if if you could say it, and well, it's now what 240 characters now. They just made it longer. If you could say, if you can't say something in that, then it probably, you know, shouldn't be said on on social media. So, mm-hmm. um, and. Uh, now, are you still going to be doing your ROM video updates as uh, you know, just as they come in? Yeah, I'll try to get back on track doing those. I've been really wrapped up in a lot of different things right lately, so I haven't really been on those. And uh, I'm gonna, in about a month, I'll have a significantly better computer set up here to actually, because I'm really struggling with video editing. I didn't really appreciate how much power and time and everything that takes, so. Yeah. Hopefully I'll be able to do better videos. That's my main thing. I want to get the quality under control first. Because my first videos, and the ones I sent to you before, they were really, really poorly rendered. So I apologize about that. No, I mean, it's fine. I think the, I think if if you were going to do some big fancy video, yeah, you know, go go as close to my life in gaming as you could possibly do it. Because those guys are like the bar. Yeah. But for things they like the news that. updates, you oh. almost you almost could just put a, a JPEG up on the screen that says, you know, Smoke Monsters November update and talk over it. Like... Uh, you know, that's my opinion, of course, but I just, um, keeping people in the loop of all this stuff, and for the record, for anybody listening, uh, there hasn't been that much ROM news other than, like, Sonic 3D and, uh, all those amazing language translations, so it's, you know, nothing's, nothing's waiting to be revealed here, but, uh, when it does, I guess we could expect another video uh, as needed when they come out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll keep doing those for sure well into the future, and, uh, I've been streaming a lot lately too, which I just like being able to chat with people while you play a game or something or show off something cool. Yeah. So streaming is something I've really been enjoying too. Yeah, you're about to enter a whole new world of uh, of streaming and, and, and social media that way. It's a lot of fun actually. So. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you very much. And as as suspe- uh, suspected, uh, as you can see, the absent is now pretty much milky white. So I'm gonna go drink the shit out of this. <laughs> nice, Mr. Lautrec. <laughs> Now on to the Q&As. Last week, I had talked about which consoles need either immediate cap replacements or at the very least open them up to see if the caps are bad. And I missed a few, and I missed a doozy. The Game Gear. 
I can't believe I forgot to mention the Game Gear. <laughs> Almost everyone I've seen had exploded caps, and uh, I've even seen a lot on eBay that people were putting up for parts or not working, where they actually tried to do a cap replacement themselves, ruined the console, and then sold it for that. So definitely check your own Game Gear. Make sure when you're buying others, especially if it's uh, for parts are not working, just ask, was this something that you've modded before? Is this, you know, is this a failed mod, or is this just not powering on? But there were a few other consoles that people mentioned. The Turbo Express and the Pioneer Laser Active were uh, some of the top ones. Also, uh, people had mentioned, well, if you're already checking for different things, you might as well check the batteries, which makes total sense. Lots of things like the Saturn, the Dreamcast, the Sega CD, of course. Um, the batteries are all going dead in these consoles, and that's usually an easy one. The Sega CD, everything involving the original Sega CD is a pain, but um, at least the other ones like the Saturn and the Dreamcast are pretty easy. And for the Xboxes, a bunch of people actually commented to, uh, to let me know that there is one cap specifically that uh, tends to go bad in many models of the Xbox, and that affects the uh, the clock, so the system clock, whenever the console isn't plugged in. But the one I was specifically mentioning, I'd seen a few where at least a third of the caps had leaked and just really ruined most of the motherboard. Um, some cases were obviously much more extreme than others, and of course, you know, temperature, humidity, abuse, all that stuff. But I would... Um, uh, at the very least, if you have an Xbox, I would check that one cap for the system time to make sure it doesn't leak out. And supposedly, you don't even need to replace it. You could just remove it, and then uh, obviously, every time you unplug the Xbox, you lose time. But I don't think that's that big a deal. So I guess uh, add the Xbox to the list and make sure to check at least that one cap. But I would just kind of take a look anyway to make sure. But uh, thanks to everybody for posting the corrections, and I still can't believe I forgot about the game gear. <laughs> Next, Chris Syme posted and requested that I talk about Yakuza Kiwami, a PS4 remake of the PS2 game. Uh, and to be honest, um, you know, I would talk a lot more about these things, I just don't really know about them. Uh, where my gray area in video game history lies is pretty much N64 to just about mid-PS2, and because that was really the time of my life where, you know, it's a beer and chicks were the most important thing on the planet, and then, you know, uh, then I got corporate job right away, I kind of flip-flopped, I was the guy that, you know, right out of high school just went to tech school and landed a pretty decent job and then immediately started traveling with my other job. So I was really just all over the place and didn't spend as much time or, or really have as much interest in video games at that point. And it wasn't until life slowed down a bit until I really jumped back into it. So I never heard of Yakuza Kiwami before. I know half of you probably PS2 fans just wanted to reach through YouTube and smack me in the face for saying that, but I'm just being honest. So, um, Anytime you guys know about these things, uh, if there's really great remakes, things like Wonder Boy the Dragon's Trap that I often talk about, if there's something that really um, deserves more merit, then please just send me wherever you can, email, in the comments, whatever, and I'll make sure to, to definitely mention it. Uh, but thanks for bringing it up, Chris, because it is just a, kind of a big hole in my gaming history. And my life in gaming is, uh, especially Mark, I believe, is a big PS2 fan and was really into that stuff. So, um, I mean, I keep in touch with those guys, too. So hopefully, uh, if you're watching Mark, make sure to, to send me an instant message or something when you hear about these things so I can keep everybody in the loop. But thanks for posting. 
Next, Mechanical Paladin asked, when do you think that we can get OSSC support for modern capture devices such as the Elgato HD60 Pro? Um, to be honest, I don't really think many modern console or many modern capture cards would support the OSSC if it doesn't already. So you have ones like the Datapath Visions that seem to take everything that I throw at it, and it does look great. It's a full RGB color space card. But you might try emailing them, and uh, maybe we could all just kind of get together and figure out what the issue is and be able to explain it so their developers could really see. But it's my guess that it's such a small percentage of people that use the cards would use it for that, that if it doesn't already work with the OSSC, it probably won't. Uh, but hopefully I'm wrong. Um, but I would definitely do the opposite. I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't try to get your capture card to work with the OSSC. I would try to buy one that you know for a fact works with it. So uh, I do love that Datapath card, and there's one that works with some consoles and not others, the Epifan card that's external, that's very great as well. But hopefully we could continue to make some progress and maybe get a list together of uh, all the ones that are fully compatible with every console and every mode. A few people had contacted me to add a little bit more clarity to the Darksoft CPS2 kit submissions on Twin Galaxies thing. It's still a bit confusing for me, but uh, I really appreciate Art taking the time last week to, to explain some of it, especially because I literally pulled him away from the Too Old Tour or Too Furious tournament to do this. But Beast um, posted to let everybody know that there's the new update for the Darksoft kits allows people to play the original encrypted ROMs in their fullest form on the multi. So it's essentially 100% being like playing the original, which is pretty cool. And also, Evan, uh, the person who actually got his submission accepted by Twin Galaxies, posted a lot of great info. I'm just going to try to give uh, the bullet points here, and I'll post links in the description. But the ROM set that he was using was the Avalanche ROMs. And um, if you're going to mod your board for battery-free use, those are the ones that you should be using because other ROM sets might not be accepted with Twin Galaxies. Now, I'm not sure if that's a permanent thing, if that's, you know, uh, there's, always, there's always drama or, or stuff with this arcade things, and it's always been that way, even if you watch that documentary where, you know, the, the King of Kong or something. So I guess at the moment, regardless of the reasons why, Avalanche are the ones that you need to use. Um, also, there's a few other points he wanted to make uh, with that Darksoft firmware update. With the, four the, with the four wire mod, the multi writes the original factory encryption key on boot up. I think that's what Beast was talking about. Uh, no battery required, uses the original game code. Uh, he's been testing it and said no problems at all. Uh, and he said the way he, he would set it up if you guys want to submit to Twin Galaxies is um, show the system booting, show all gameplay from start to finish, show the physical dip switches, show the game PCB, and show the settings in the service menu. Which uh, makes sense. I mean, I think that's kind of standard for, for these things. And he said he's got a submission in for a CPS1 game. That's a good example of what to do. So links to all this stuff are down below. And thanks to much, so much to Evan and Beast for posting and last week for Art for helping out. Because as much as I love the arcade stuff, I, I'm by no means an expert in the little details like this. But I'm trying to learn, and I'll get there eventually. Well, that's pretty much it for this week. 
Before I go, I definitely wanted to remind everybody about the interview I did with John Linneman from Digital Foundry. Um, after the interview, I, I went back and watched some more of his DF Retro stuff and had even more of an appreciation for it. The Daytona video was the one that specifically just really hooked me because that's one of my favorite games. It's probably one of my favorite racing games, too, and I just... Uh, to be able to see how he broke it down and explained the versions and did it in a technical way but that anybody could understand, I mean, I'm, I'm absolutely hooked. So please check out the interview with him. Uh, we had a lot of fun doing it. And also, uh, I think this week is going to be the first re-release, so I'm going to be taking some of the interviews, uh, some of my favorites at least, that were included in the weekly roundup and to actually put them up as separate interviews. So, um, you know, if you haven't seen them, now's a great chance to experience them. They'll be audio and video. And if you've already seen them, maybe click them up and, uh, you know, and let them play for a minute just to get the view count. Because I, I certainly don't want people who took the time to do these great interviews to see a repost with, like, 10 views on it. <laughs> I don't want to, like, accidentally insult somebody by doing that. So, uh, yeah, show some love to the, the interviewees, if you will. But, as always, uh, thanks to you guys for everything. Thanks to the Patreons. Uh, next week will be the Patreon giveaway. I got a pretty cool one for you. And the only hint is it uh, has to do with some of the stuff we've been talking about lately. And no, it's not an RGB modded TV. I wouldn't even know how to, <laughs> wouldn't even know how to ship that. But uh, hopefully it is still. Well, hopefully you guys think it's still cool. Um, and uh, as always, any comments or criticism, please post down below. And I'll see you guys next time.